The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Yes, as uh, Sam has introduced me already, I am Rob Spikestra. I am the headmaster at Morningstar Academy. Been there for about uh, about a year and a half, almost coming up on two years. Uh, previous to this, I was uh, uh, in uh, Yellowstone National Park as the uh, resident minister of Yellowstone National Park, and then previous to that, I was actually at another classical Christian school, and then previous to that, I was a pastor at uh, Fremont Evangelical Free Church, and previous to that, I was an associate pastor at a Baptist church in uh, Lakewood, Colorado, which is my, my home. Uh, my daughter is with me uh, this morning. Uh, I actually have three sons who are now out of the home, and then my daughter is the last one uh, there, and I, I'm in my house. Um, she is an eighth grader at Morningstar Academy. My uh, wife uh, would love to be here, but she is actually taking care of, I believe, uh, what, three-year-olds, maybe four-year-olds over at Davenport, uh, Sacred City Davenport, so, uh, so she couldn't be here, so she misses that. So thank you for inviting me uh, to come and bring God's word uh, to you. So let's pray and ask God's help. <laughs> Father, we, um, uh, we thank you that we can come boldly into your presence. Our confidence, Father, is not uh, in ourselves. My confidence is not in me. But rather, Father, our confidence is in your Son, who made all things possible for us. And one of those things is that we could come to you this morning in prayer and to come before you and ask that you would help us. Our prayer, Father, is that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that your word would be spoken and that we as listeners to your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and our lives that you would uh, have a way with us, that you would change us and make us, that you would cause us to repent where repentance is needed and to have faith where faith is needed, that you would be one who would, as we leave here, that you would be glorified and that we would have joy as a result of that glory. So, Father, we thank you and look forward to what you will be doing in and through your word and your Holy Spirit um, please help us again. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible uh, there in front of you, either your app or your actual uh, Bible, I'd have you turn to 1 Peter because I am going to uh, remind us a little bit of where we have been in the, the book of Peter in this, in this letter. Uh, if you notice here at the end of our reading, we have these final two words, doing good. Those seem like pretty safe uh, words, uh, but if you have been with Sam for a couple of months, you've discovered that as he has been preaching through 1 Peter, uh, these were not safe words in Peter's day, and they are not safe words in our day. Increasingly, as our culture moves away from God's revealed standards of morality, our doing good will feel out of place, marginalized. As our culture redefines God-given institutions such as marriage 
to fit its own preferences, our doing will be considered out of date, a throwback not to be taken seriously, mocked. As our culture demands that one defines their identity based upon their sexuality, we who recognize the Creator's prerogative to create male and female and calling us to define our identity around the person of Jesus Christ, our doing good will be considered bigoted, maligned. And Peter even throws out the possible but unlikely event that in doing good in God's eyes, one might even be martyred. See, the conversation actually began back in chapter 3 at verse 13 where we read Peter's words, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Increasingly, as we do good, as defined by the standard of God's holy character, we will be marginalized, mocked, maligned, and in some places even possibly martyred. Open Doors Ministry is a ministry that's been around about 50 years. Uh, Their mission statement is this, Uh, to strengthen the church to be the church in the most hostile places in the world. And so they put out a list every year of 50 countries, the top 50 countries, where it is most dangerous to follow Jesus. In their most recent list that came out just this last week, here are some facts and trends. 215 million Christians experience high levels of persecution. That represents about 1 in 12 Christians worldwide. North Korea is ranked number one uh, for the past 16 years in this persecution. During the most recent reporting year, 3,066 Christians were killed. 1,252 were abducted. 1,020 were raped or sexually harassed, and 793 churches were attacked. Islamic oppression fuels persecution in eight of the top ten countries. Here's one story in Open Doors Ministries' uh, website, a story from India, which is a country that's 11th on the list. Late one night, Pastor Rohan and his wife Neha heard a a knock at the door, But they weren't expecting anyone to come that evening. And when they looked outside, they saw a crowd of people gathered, sticks in hand. The people accused the couple of evangelizing a young boy in their village, which was true. The leaders in the community wanted Rohan and his family out at any cost. Pastor Rohan recalls, he says, They began to beat my wife until we bled, and then then they picked up our baby and threw him against a heap of stones. 
he keeps on going. He says, the trauma was so much that my wife lost the baby she was carrying in her womb. Forced to leave their home with nothing, the family had no one to turn to. However, Neha says she heard God remind her of the pain that Christ suffered on the cross, and they soon began to see his provision. See, persecutions of Christians is rising in India more than ever before. The growth of radical Hinduism in a nation is fueling, in that nation is fueling violent attacks with even greater impunity for attackers at the government as the government sides with radical groups. Yet, yet, in the midst of it all, Christianity is growing exponentially in India of that, in that country of 1.3 billion people. People are coming to Jesus in increasing numbers, proof that nothing can keep him from accomplishing his purposes through his people. Persecution. What I would call gospel trouble. Is the reality of the church. And we need this passage, even if today we don't feel persecuted, to the degree of our brothers and sisters around the world. See, this passage is important to us for three reasons. First, when Peter was writing to his letters, remember who he was writing, in, writing to? Well, in chapter 1, verse 1, it's to the exiles. And then he describes those exiles as individuals in five different provinces. And in those provinces, there was probably 10 to 12, maybe a little more, churches who were, go who were going through a degree of persecution, different degrees of persecution, as they were receiving this letter and then passing it on to the next church. And so this morning, we have a similar situation here in front of us. We are made up of individual lives with individual stories with varying degrees of suffering. Suffering that has come as a result of one's identification with the person of Christ. And if you're not suffering for Christ today, Peter assures us, you will. Secondly, Scripture, Scripture never calls us to seek out suffering for suffering's sake. Matter of fact, in Romans 12, 18, Paul writes, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Or in 1 Timothy 2, 2, Paul tells Timothy to pray for all the people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that you may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Or even Peter, in our passage, writes, Honor everyone, back in chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, these are calls uh, uh, not to go out and look for suffering, but rather to be people who are, are working with those around us peacefully with our neighbors, our co-workers, our unbelieving family members. Yet you suffer as a result of claiming Christ. You suffer and settle quiet ways, marginalized, or in louder ways, mocked, or in more hurtful ways, maligned. Some here today are suffering. Finally, their stories. Uh, those, those Christians uh, the true church living in those top 50 countries where it is most dangerous to follow uh, Jesus is our story. 
Because we are members of one another in the body of Jesus, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. Or even closer to home, as fellow believers at Sacred City Moline, as you suffer, we suffer. Or if you're in a, a missional community, as a member of your missional community suffers, that missional community suffers with you. There is a fellowship of suffering that makes this passage incredibly important to each of us here today because we are suffering. This passage is important because you will suffer, you are suffering, we are suffering. And in the end today, we connected to the body of Christ, are suffering together. So what we find here is that the very gospel that gets us into trouble is the same gospel that causes us not just to survive, but to thrive in that trouble. So the question I want to ask is simply this, how? How does the gospel cause us to thrive in a life of gospel trouble? Well, here's the first answer. Number one, the gospel compels us to rejoice in our suffering. The gospel compels us to rejoice in our suffering. So what does gospel trouble look like? Well, look back now at verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Gospel trouble. See, uh, look how he identifies them. First he calls them beloved. Literally, those who are loved by God. The same opinion that God the Father had of his Son. See, remember that. Remember at the very beginning of the public ministry of Jesus, as he was being baptized, we hear these words, the, the words from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then later on in his ministry, as he was coming to the end, and he's there on the Mount of Transfiguration, the words are repeated again. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then we come to the resurrection, and it is the bodily affirmation of those words. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. That's the father's opinion of his son, and that is his, the father's opinion of you who've rested in Jesus Christ's death on the cross. See, the gospel is this. The father's opinion of his son is the same opinion of all those who trust in his son's sacrifice on the cross. Jesus Christ took the father's displeasure for our sins on the cross so that the father's pleasure of his son could be yours. That's the good news. So they are loved. They're loved of God. See, Paul reminded uh, them of that change of their status. Now look over at chapter 2, verse 10 in your Bibles. He reminds them, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
And it's not surprising that the next word out of the ink of his pen there in chapter 2, verse 11 is what? Beloved. The gospel. That that changed status now changes everything. And so chapter 2, verse 11 is really the beginning of Paul's middle section Uh, of the letter where he focuses in on our behavior of those who are sojourners and exiles, he says in verse 11, chapter 2. And in this middle section, he calls them to a lifestyle that is reflective of their new status. Verse 9 of chapter 2, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Thus their conduct is to be, follow with me, chapter 2, verse 12, it is to be honorable. Or verses 13 through 17, it will affect all of their relationships to the government, to their employers, particularly the unjust ones, verses 18 through 19. Or you get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and that new status now changes their relationship to their spouses. And then their new status will affect all of their relationships to those who just don't get them. (laughs) Who, who, who then reviled them and harmed them with words. We see that in verses uh, 8 through 17, chapter 3. For the one, Jesus Christ, who loved them and suffered for them on the cross, is their prototype, their leader whom they must be willing to follow as those who are now his beloved. And we see that in verses 18 chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 1. So that if you live, verse 2, chapter 4, for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but the will of God, if you use your gifts to serve him, verse 10, chapter 4, that would have been Sam preaching two weeks ago, you can expect trouble. Look at what Peter writes, verse 12. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Surprise. See, see, this is the same word that he uses back there in verse 4, where those whom we used to join with uh, you know, remember that uh, there, middle verse 3, uh, when we used to live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peter says, do not be surprised. That your changed status before God, which brings a gospel change in your life, will bring gospel trouble from those whom used to be your pals. They will malign you. And that same gospel that gets us into trouble is the same gospel that causes us not just to survive, but to thrive in that trouble. So, The first thing it does, it compels us to rejoice. Verse 13. Uh, But rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, 
You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So how does the gospel, how does this compel us to be people who rejoice in our suffering? Well, uh, look there, number one, uh, gospel trouble calls, uh, causes us to share in Christ's suffering. You can see that there in verse 13. See, the word share is where we get our word fellowship. It's that special bonding that occurs when you, are, when you share in the sufferings of others. Uh, for example, uh, when your company requires you and your fellow workers to work overtime to get a rush order delivered, and everyone shares in the pain and suffering that comes with those late nights and the physical and emotional fatigue, even so much that even those co-workers that you don't really get along with, all of a sudden you're beginning to enjoy them. Huh. Or perhaps as a student... You gather a band of friends to pull an all-nighter in preparation for a presentation or a test. There's a fellowship there. Or perhaps you're a mother of a toddler, or maybe you have multi-toddlers. <laughs> and you find two or three sisters in Christ in whom you share your suffering together. Or you're on an athletic team and you suffer a particular setback or a challenge for the season. A special bonding occurs when we suffer around a common goal or theme. Well, the same is true in Christ. As gospel trouble comes into our lives, we have a fellowship with Christ's suffering on the cross, but more than that, Christ suffers today. Now, obviously not for our sins anymore, but he suffers because he has called us brother, sister, and we are part of his body. So when we suffer, he suffers. There's a special bonding that occurs between us and Christ. So we rejoice because of gospel trouble because it causes us to share in Christ's suffering, a fellowship there. But there's a second reason why we can rejoice, and it is looking to the future. Uh, look at that next phrase there in verse 13. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, gospel trouble causes us to rejoice as we anticipate his return. Uh, Peter's taking us back to, back to the future a reality of Christ's return, um, a return that is theologically imminent. Uh, and remember back there in verse 7, this again would be Sam preaching two weeks ago, the end of all things is at hand. Uh, God has a, a work that he's doing within human history. We have, the, we have creation and then the fall and then redemption and, and finally we have consummation. And the first three have already happened. And so it's imminent. The last thing that we have is now is this final theological moment, uh, and that is consummation, the reconciliation of all things into Christ. And so we're simply waiting for this fourth return. And so the joy of his return will be the consummation of our faith. See, when we suffer, when we suffer now, it is by faith in a reality that we can't see but one that is all the real, uh, real all the same. It, it is the joy that comes in receiving the reward of the reality of our faith. Now, where's Peter getting this? Where's Peter getting this idea of reward 
Uh, well, he's uh, at Christ's return. Well, he's getting it from our Lord and Savior there uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. See, Jesus in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, uh, we hear Jesus' words, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. See, the reward is the expanded ability to enjoy Christ when he returns. I, I ran cross-country um, in, in high school and then on into college. Um, I was stupid enough to do that. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I actually loved it. Uh, I loved the fellowship of suffering that went on with regards to uh, running with others and suffering with them. Uh, but what we, we found is the harder we suffered in practice, the harder we suffered in anticipation for the big race, the greater the enjoyment was when we finally went through the finish line. And so I think even in a, in a, since we can all get this, so, so that as we go back to my examples, as you're working on the assembly line, late nights, working hard, working towards that goal, you get to the goal, there's, a, there's an enjoyment of meeting a goal. If you're the students and you, you all take that test or give that presentation, you come out and you enjoy the hard work that got there. Or you think of it as a, a mother and the hard work of working with those toddlers and you begin to see some improvements some obedience. What a joy. The greater we suffer, the greater enjoyment it is when we come to the end. Or if you think it the opposite way, the less hard we work, the less we suffer, the less the end is not, not that big of a deal. And so we rejoice. We rejoice in our suffering because of the consummation of our faith as a result of that experience. We, ex we, enjoy, uh, we enjoy the presence of Christ that much more. Well, thirdly, number three, uh, Peter tells us, gospel trouble confirms for us the indwelling Holy Spirit. Look there, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And again, we have to ask the question, where does Peter get this stuff? Well, he gets it from his Lord, from, from Jesus. Again, on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you. So what is the blessing according to Peter? Well, the blessing is the evidence of the indwelling spirit who causes one to be willing and able to be insulted for the name of Christ. And the richness of this blessing is found in the descriptor of the Holy Spirit. So did you see those two descriptors there of the Holy Spirit? The first is of glory, and then the second is the Spirit of God. So of glory. In the Old Testament, when God would descend and dwell on the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, it is described this way in the, in the end of uh, Exodus. Matter of fact, it's the very last uh, uh, words we have there in Exodus. It's described this way. Then the Lord covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled it. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up, 
From over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So that when, when Moses would meet with God there in the tabernacle, he would have to come out with a veil because his face would be affected and it would be shining and glowing, but it would slowly, it would slowly go away. And he didn't want them, his people, God's people, to think that somehow God's glory was going away. Well, the glory of God, the, the weight of all of his attributes would dwell in the tabernacle and then later in the temple made of stones. But guess what? We've become that temple. Peter calls us, chapter 2, verse 4, living stones. The trouble of the gospel reveals that this same glory of God dwells in us. The same glory of God of the Old Testament now dwells in us, enabling, and, enabling us and glorifying himself through our trials. <laughs> but not only of glory, but of God. You see there back in our passage, the spirit of God rests upon you, which is an echo an echo of a prophecy in Isaiah when Isaiah is prophesying of the Messiah where he says, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Messiah. It's the same word, rest, that we have here in verse 14. The significance is that the messianic blessing, that the same spirit that rested on the Christ is the same spirit resting upon the believer. Now that's good news. That's good news when you're suffering. That's good news when you are going through gospel trouble. That this spirit of glory, the spirit of God, is dwelling in you. And so we rejoice. Thus, point one. Uh, the glory compels us to rejoice in our, sorry, the gospel compels us to rejoice in our suffering. Well, point two, point two. The gospel compels us to glory in, to glory in the God of our suffering. The gospel compels us to glory in the God of our suffering. Look at verses 15 through 18. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteousness is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Well, how does the glory of God relate to our joy in the midst of suffering? In other words, what is so good about the glory of God in the midst of our gospel trouble? 
Well, people, uh, Peter tries to help us understand this by giving us the contrast there in verse 15. So when we suffer, when we get in trouble for doing what is universally considered uh, uh, wrong, murder, stealing, general evildoing, or uh, even meddling, that is uh, getting in places where, it doesn't, where our nose really doesn't belong with the subsequent kind of gossip and the unwanted advice giving uh, to things that we ought to be ashamed of. These are the things that we ought to be ashamed of. It is easy to trace our trouble back to the source when the source is all those wrongs. In other words, we have made our bed and now we have to sleep in it. But verse 16, he writes, If anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed. The name Christian. When those who followed Christ were first encountered in the first uh, century, it was thought that they were simply a Jewish sect. And thus they were under Roman law, a protected group of people. But when it became apparent that Gentiles were now being invited in by the good news, by the gospel, that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but the gospel was for all people. It's there where then the followers of Jesus Christ were given a new name, Christian. And it wasn't a happy name. It was a derisive name. Oh, you're the Christ followers that party of Christians, that party of Christ's fathers. You, you can read about that in Acts chapter 11. And thus, when they became Christians, they were no longer protected under uh, Jewish law. But rather than being ashamed, Peter says, of that name, verse 16, look what he says we should do. Let him glorify God in that name. Now why? Well, he continues. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. The judgment of God's people at the household of God. So, so what is so wonderful about judgment that begins at the household of God? It's almost like when someone who is responsible for our trouble comes to us and says, you know, you ought to be thanking me for this. <laughs> well, my dad... Um, he was my high school track coach, and he had one particular workout, which was a nightmare. Uh, he, it would bring me uh, to the edge of misery like no other workout. And so as I'm, can you just imagine this, as I'm retching at one point uh, of the workout, doubled over, um, having kind of that tunnel vision that comes with lack of oxygen to the brain, uh, he stands over me and he says, you know, uh, you ought to be thanking me. <laughs> what? What do you mean? Well, in his position of authority, coach, with his power, uh, that came that with that position to make me run, and in his wisdom, applying physiological uh, principles to my particular uh, situation, he was transforming me into a very successful 800-meter runner. 
He was bringing trial into my running life in order to make me into the image of a runner. Now, it's clear, it is clear whom Peter is addressing here. He's called them in chapter 1, verse 1, the elect, speaking of God's sovereign, loving choice of them. He's identified them as living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Already we've seen that, verse 5 of chapter 2. He called them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. And we've already seen he's called them beloved. God's beloved. His people escaped God's judgment because God's beloved, his son, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ endured God's wrath, suffered punishment on behalf of God's people, and therefore set them free from God's curse. Well, that's the gospel again. So Peter's not referring here to condemnation of the household of God when he writes. See, Peter knew his, his Old Testament, and so in his head was a particular uh, passage, Ezekiel chapter 9. And in Ezekiel chapter 9, God called executioners to come forward for the purpose to judge the people in Jerusalem, starting, guess where? At the house of God, the temple. But before the executioners were to do their work, God calls another man and says this, Ezekiel 9.4. He says, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men and women who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So that it's these who, because they are God's people and love God, hate sin and thus receive a mark, a seal, who these will be the ones who will be spared. God spares condemnation, execution, for those who have been marked out for his own. But there's a second passage that Peter had in his mind when he was writing this letter, and it's out of Malachi chapter 3, the prophecy of Malachi. See, in Malachi chapter 3, we're introduced to an individual called the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And it says there in verses 2 and 3, it says, he is coming, this, this messenger of the covenant. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. Remember, they're the tribe of priests. And refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. See, the refiner's fire, and that's how Peter had described the trials in our passage in verse 12. The fiery trial to test you. And how did he reintroduce the purpose of these trials in chapter 1? Remember that? Way back when, verse 7, chapter 1. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And how does he describe his readers? He describes them as a royal priesthood from the tribe of Levi, the sons of Levi, as identified in Malachi 3. See, the judgment of God's sealed ones is not a condemnation. No, there's a completely different word for that. No, it's a judgment of purifying 
refinement. Sanctification. A judge discerns. He brings judgment as he listens and as he, uh, as he observes a particular case. And so God observes, observes and listens and discerns each of his own children's lives and then brings this kind of judgment, purifying fire kind of judgment through his purifying trials to remove what we hate in ourselves, knowing these things, to destroy sin, to crush the idols, those things that we think will bring us safety and security, but will fail us in the end. He's making us into his image of his perfect self. And thus I make much. I glorify God. I make much of his sovereign purposes for my trials. I make much of his power that removes that stubborn sin. I make much of his wisdom because I know it's being perfectly applied into my life. I make much of his omniscience because he sees even what I don't see in my life. And so I glorify God for my trials because it's being perfectly applied to my life in a powerful way to remove all that which I hate already in my life and that which I do not know. That's the good news, the gospel. What about those who do not believe? If under the protection of Jesus Christ, his judgment feels severe, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What does the gospel command? What does the gospel command? It commands belief. It commands all those who hear it to trust in it. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not have life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So the answer to the question is, the wrath of God remains on them. And then Peter quotes Proverbs 11, verse 31. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? See, the word uh, scarcely can be translated also with difficulty or hard. It's the word that is used in Acts of the sailors who were in the midst of the storm and they were having a hard time with it. They're having a hard time keeping the ship on course. So while we do not earn our salvation, we are to live obediently to God in the light of that salvation. And frankly, it's hard work. It's hard work to obey 
in this fallen world and in this fallen body. And many times in this fight of faith, we may say to ourselves, Christ, you better return quickly or you better take me home because I don't think I can persevere. So if the righteous who are protected from the wrath of God by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly who are not protected? It's a rhetorical question. They will experience the full force of God's wrath for all eternity. It should make us weep. The gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ took the full force of God's wrath for our sins compels us to glory in God in our sufferings because our suffering today as a result of his gospel is a sanctifying judgment that is guided by his wise discerning eyes making us more and more like Christ every day. You know, you ought to thank me. Thirdly, that same gospel that gets us into trouble is the same gospel that causes us not just to survive but to thrive in that trouble. We rejoice in our sufferings. We glorify the God of our sufferings. Number three, we commit our souls to God in our sufferings. We commit our souls to God in our sufferings. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering for doing good is God's will for your life. It's God's revealed will. We know that now because we have it revealed to us in his word that he wants his people to suffer for doing good, but it's also his decreed will. So as I suffer for doing good, I can know that he has decreed it for my particular life. And it is not something outside of God's plan, but within his plan and purposes for my life. So what is my response to be? Well, my response is to entrust my soul to a faithful creator. And that word entrust can also be translated commit. And it is that same verb that appears in our Lord's final words on the cross when he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so our, like our Lord, we are called to the same trust, to the same noble rest our Lord was called to, to commit our souls to our Creator. And isn't it interesting, this is the only time that word Creator is found in the New Testament. He's the Creator of your soul, recreating you into the image of His Son through the, the decree, the purposeful suffering that He has given to you to make you more into the image of His Son. So that he is, what, a faithful creator. He is faithfully using our suffering to complete the work he began in us. So what does entrusting ourselves to him look like? Well, it looks like this. And you can see it there at the very end. 
continuing to do good. Keep on doing good in the name of Christ. Keep on doing good in those relationships, bringing the gospel and knowing that it might get you into trouble. The very gospel that gets you into trouble is the same gospel that causes us to thrive. Do good, you might be marginalized. Do good, you might be mocked. Do good, you might be maligned. Do good, you might be martyred. You will suffer. You are suffering. We are suffering all around the world. The gospel compels us to rejoice as we share in Christ's suffering, as we anticipate his return, as it confirms in us the indwelling Holy Spirit. Rejoice. The gospel compels us to glory in the God of our suffering. We can glory today in his sovereignty, in his power, in his wisdom, in his omniscience, in his truthfulness. We can glory in God. The gospel compels us to commit our souls to our faithful creator and keep doing you haven't obeyed the gospel, today's the day. Today's the day. Christ took your sin in his body on the cross, took the full wrath of God on your behalf that he might give you his righteousness, that the opinion that the Father has of his Son, I am well pleased with you, the Father will say the same of you as a result of your obedience to the gospel, and it's as simple as this. Believe it. Trust in it. With all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Father, that's a work only you can do. Only you can give faith right now. Father, only you can give faith to anyone here who has yet to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, you are the only one who can give faith to us who are suffering in the name of Christ. That we be people who rejoice. That we be people who glorify in you, that we be people who entrust our souls to you, only you can give faith. Father, we are beggars asking for faith. Give us faith today, Father, in what you have decreed for our lives. Thank you that you're generous and kind and loving and wonderful. So, Father, as we take this Lord's Supper, we are reminded again of that generosity. The generosity, Father, that you would give your Son. The generosity of the Son that he would give of his life. The generosity of the Holy Spirit who would apply it to our lives for us who have believed in him and are baptized. Father, we thank you again in your generosity as we take this, as we take this cup and reminded of the shed blood of Christ and of the broken bodies we take the bread. Feed us. Feed our faith that as we go out and suffer, we might keep on doing good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.